so welcome everyone. I, um, I work in the mathematics department and occasionally give talks like this. Um, I've got to tell you a bit about prime numbers today. Um, you might, well I imagine most people know what a prime number is, but in case you don't, let me uh, just take you through um, what the definition is. So prime number is something that can't be broken down really into any other factors. So they're numbers like 2 and 3 and 5 and 6 definitely isn't because it's 3 times 2. And we don't usually consider 1 to be a prime factor, a prime number. That's something I'll tell you a little bit about in a moment. So if we start listing these prime numbers, these are what they look like. They seem to go on a little randomly. They go 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17 and so on. Uh, and then they go on. They get slightly more rare but you can still the list seems to go on for quite a way. And in fact, the list goes on forever, and that's something I hope to prove today. Um, it might be a little bit hard, so I'll try and take you through, th through that proof. You might wonder why people are interested in prime numbers, and that's something I want to give you a sense of today. So if you think about the times you might have bought something from an internet company, perhaps like Amazon or something like that, downloaded something or had your parents do it for you, it's actually prime numbers that's making all that secure, that your parents' credit cards aren't being sort of, their numbers aren't being found out by other people. What makes it all secure is actually prime numbers. I want to say a little bit about that as well. And people also test their really fast computers trying to find the next big prime number. This is the largest known prime number at the moment, 2 to the 57 million or so. It was found earlier this year. Um, it's got 17 million digits, okay? So you never run out of prime numbers. They go on forever, and that's the biggest one we know at the moment. So let's, let's um, see a little bit about why prime numbers are important. So if, you, if I gave you any number, um, like, well, 6 is the easy one up there, you can write 6 as 2 times 3, or 3 times 2, but that's basically the same thing. You can write 24, well, 24 is 2 times 2 times 2 times 3, but every number can be broken down into prime numbers. Every whole number can be broken down like that. Some of them, like this big number, are actually just prime, and that's just it. And other numbers like 6 and 24 can be broken down into smaller things. Do you know how I can get this slide up? Is that in here still? No, no one knows. Okay, I was going to use the board as well. Um, Anyway, I'll, uh, I'll, you'll be seeing that we'll find all numbers, in fact, can be written uh, in this way. So everything can be broken down. And there are, that, that sort of makes them like the atoms of multiplication. Everything, if you think of a sort of like a, a number as a molecule, really, can be broken down in a certain way into these atoms. And 24 can just be written as 2 times 2 times 2 times 3, and only in that way, really. You could rejig the numbers around and put them in a different order, but really, there's, there's just um, those ways of doing it. Okay, and this is why we sort of think that one it really shouldn't be counted as a prime number. So if you, if you thought one was a prime number, well, then the, what I just told you would be wrong. There's, uh, you can write 6 as 2 times 3, but if 1 was a prime number, you could also write it as 1 times 2 times 3, and that would be a different way of doing it. Or 1 times 1 times 2 times 3. So I think I've worked out how to get these balls up. Let me... Oh, that looks promising, okay. So because of that, you want to say every number can be broken down in a unique way, and so we don't really want to say one is a prime number. Oh, I've got to stand here doing this. Uh, let's just, I think that's far enough for now. 
So how would you find these out? Let me give you an example here. Need to find some pens first. Here we go. So if I said, how would you break down a number into, in fact, I'll get this off the board for now, 17940. How would you break this down into all its numbers that make it up? And I think you all must know that if a number ends in naught, then it's got a factor of 10 in there, or a factor of 2 and a factor of 5. So you know if you, you can divide this by 2 and 5, and you'd get 1794. And because this number ends in 2, uh, sorry, ends in 4, you know it's an even number, and it's divisible by 2 itself. And if you break that down further, you're going to get 897. Now, it might not be very apparent to you. So that's dividing by 2. That was dividing by 2 and 5. What about 897? Does anyone know what 897 might be factored by? 3, three goes into it. Because you can perhaps he spot, I'm not sure quite how he spot it. Perhaps the easiest thing is to see, well, 900 is a multiple of 3. 3 goes into 900. And this is just 300, 900. So if you divide by 3 you get 299. Now, does anyone know what goes into 299? Perhaps if they had a sneak preview for the next board, they know. But other than that, this is a bit hard. And you sat there thinking, is that prime? Or does 3 go into it? No. Does 7? Well, you'd have to go and check. And actually, it turns out that 299 is 13 times 23. But it would take you a while to go and check that. So in the end, this is 13 times 23, and you've ended up getting all the factors. We've got a 2, a 5, a 2, a 3, a 13, and a 23. But I hope you can see now that if you're starting to get bigger numbers, and it obviously doesn't have a 2 or a 3 that goes in, it might take you quite a while, even with a calculator, to work out just how uh, this is going to factorise in the end. And that, that's one of the ways that the actual internet security is based, that actually factorising these things can get quite hard if you've got really big numbers. Anyway, let me, let me take you through this proof. I imagine you haven't seen much in the way of proof, so let me go through this slowly, and I'll try and give you an example uh, on the next slide to show how this works. So, so if you don't quite get all this, don't worry, but this is sort of like a proof from several thousand years ago. You can see a Greek mathematician called Euclid proved in about 300 BC, he lived in Alexandria, now in Egypt, and he proved there are actually infinitely many prime numbers. And he had a very clever way of doing it. It's called proof by contradiction. So we sort of like say to ourselves, let's pretend this is false and try and make some conclusions and get to a point where actually uh, we've ended up with some nonsense. So we know we started with a wrong, wrong starting place. So what he says is, let's uh, suppose there are just finitely many prime numbers, that the list stops. It doesn't go on forever, it actually stops. And if you've only got so many of those prime numbers, you could list them all. And what his clever idea is, if you've just got so many prime numbers, like P1, P2, up to PK, these are all the prime numbers Euclid thought there might be, what he did is he multiplied them all together and added one. Okay? And why he did that is... Because if you multiply all those numbers together and add one, you've definitely got a number now 
that none of the other numbers that you had divided it, okay? If you divide them in, they all leave remainder one. None of them go in. But that new number, that really big number, is probably created n, doesn't have any of your known prime numbers as factors. So the only possibility is now, either it's prime, or if you went and looked at its prime factors, they wouldn't be on your list. You've deliberately found something that's new, gives you a new prime number one way or another. So just in case that might seem a little bit confusing, let's try and do it with an example and see what Euclid's method would have done. So I'm going to, let, let's say we were really quite lazy and we'd only thought there were two prime numbers, two and five, which isn't a very good effort at listing them all, but let's say we started with that. Then what Euclid would say is, take your two and your five, multiply them together, add one, and that gives us 11. Now either this new number 11 is prime, or if we factorise 11, we get some numbers that aren't two or five. So in this case here, we get 11, and that's a new prime. So we've got one more on our list. So we might say, OK, maybe we've got them all now. Uh, let's take 2 and 5 and 11. I think I've got them all. Well, Euclid would say, multiply them all together, add 1, and you get 111. And it isn't prime, actually, 111. But its prime factors, which are 3 and 37, are new ones not on our list. So if ever we felt, thought we'd got all the prime numbers, he had a way of saying, multiply them all together, add one, and I'm guaranteed to get you a new prime number. So that means you can never list them all. The list must go on forever. But anyway, the reassuring thing is we're never going to run out of prime numbers. You can always find uh, bigger, and bigger and larger prime numbers. And this, I think, image is actually from in this museum. Um, this is Euclid, or a statue of Euclid. I'm, I guess no one really quite knows what he looks like. Um, and this is a statue of him in the museum. He wrote a very famous set of books called The Elements, and there's been more editions of The Elements than probably any book except the Bible. I mean, this was really the maths book, or the maths books, until really the start of the 20th century. So a very famous Greek mathematician. So if I, if I gave you some examples, a bit like this again, and said, which of these are prime, how easy would some of them be to find? Does anyone want to make any, cross a few off my list and say, such and such isn't prime, go on. Okay, and we know that because what, what factor have you seen? Two. Two, okay, it's even, if there's any even ones there we know, they're not going to be prime. Anyone else cross any of the others off? Yeah. The second one because... Okay, so you know if something ends in 5 or not, it's divisible by 5. Can anyone spot any of the others? Yeah, go on. Oh, uh, I'd have to have a think about that. It depends whether 273 is divisible by 7. Yes, it is. It is divisible by 7. Very spotted. It's also divisible by 3, uh, but good, good spot. What about any of the others? Yep. Uh, I don't think so. Why do you think it is? Uh, no, that definitely isn't, I'm afraid. That isn't divisible by three. Can anyone spot the fourth one, what that might be divisible by? Anyone? Because it's got a certain pattern to it, hasn't it? 337, 337. 
Anyone think of it? Go on. You're doing very well. Sorry? 14? No, all the last ones are odd. So 14 couldn't divide it. It would be an even number. Now, 337, you see, divides the fourth one. Can anyone see how many times 337 goes into the fourth one? No? It's a thousand and one times. It's just, that, that's why it's sort of repeated like that. It's 337 times a thousand and one is the fourth one. But you can see they're getting a bit harder. And um, here are some tricks for simple things. Obviously, it's fairly easy to work out whether something's divisible by two. And it's not too hard for four and eight either. Five is also fairly easy, mainly because we just use decimal, and that's base 10, so two and five are factors of 10, and so that makes it a bit easier. If you add up all the numbers in uh, all the digits in a number, like for example, uh, two, seven, three, two, one, if you add up two and seven and three and two and one, you get what, nine, 12, 14, 15, and because 15 is divisible by 3, so is that number. That's a trick you might not have seen before. If you add up all the digits and it's divisible by 3, that's some the number would have been. And the same works for 9 as well. If you add up all the numbers uh, and it's divisible by 9, the sum, so would the original number. So that number isn't divisible by 9 because 15 is not divisible by 9. But these are just tricks for small numbers. If you wanted to work out some of the others, they're getting a bit hard. As it happens, uh, 104729 is prime. It's quite a large prime. It would take you quite a while uh, to work this out. This other big number, though, is uh, actually not prime. But you'd have to try all the prime numbers until eventually you got to 331 to find a factor. That's going to take you quite a while you'd have to try 66 prime numbers before you actually got to the 67th prime number, and that's going to take you a long time. So find, verifying that's prime and showing that isn't would take quite a while, and they're only six digits long, those numbers. Okay. So this is what I'm sort of getting at with, uh, with some of these aspects. Um, if you're going to guarantee something's prime, you basically have to go up to the square root. I imagine you've come across ideas of square roots. So square root of 4 is 2, square root of 9 is 3. You'd have to go up to the square root, checking all the prime numbers, and if none of them divided it, then it was prime. So if you wanted to check that 104,729 was prime, you've got to try every prime number, and there are quite a few of them, 66, until you get up to... Uh, 323 and then by that point you've actually checked its prime that's a, that's really quite a hard thing to do so actually working out in general this sort of uh, factorization is quite hard even for computers once the numbers start getting quite big so that's really why we, we use it uh, in security here's another way a clever way due, due to a French man uh, from the 17th century, Fermat. Um, so if uh, P is a prime and N is a whole number, then the prime number will divide 
n to the p minus n. That's a theorem that you, you might meet at university if you studied maths there, but we're only really interested in it from a point of view of it helping test prime numbers. So if we just check it here, what his theorem says is that for something like 5, which is definitely, five, uh, definitely prime, 5 divides 2 to the power 5 minus 2. So 2 to the power 5 minus 2 is 32 minus 2, and we get 30. And 5 also divides 3 to the 5 minus 3, because that's 240. And 5 will also divide 4 to the 5 minus 4, because that's 1,020. And so if you turn it on its head and say, well, suppose I had a number that didn't, this theorem didn't hold for, then I knew it wasn't prime. That could be useful the other way around. Without having to check all these factors, you could do one, possibly big calculation, but one calculation and get it right. And so you could say to yourself, well, if p is prime, it's going to divide 2 to the p minus 2. So if I have a number that isn't prime, or if, if I have a number n, and it doesn't divide 2 to the n minus 2, then n won't be prime. And sometimes that's an easier thing to work through than when you've got a large number and you're trying to work out all its possible factors. So that could be a way of crossing it off. The trouble is there are some nasty numbers out there that still satisfy all these tests. So we call, we call these things pseudo-primes. And they do this, they satisfy all this without being prime themselves. It won't be very obvious, but 561 is one of these numbers. So 561 satisfies all this theorem. 561 would always divide uh, n to the 561 minus n. But it isn't itself prime, so there are some annoying numbers out there that's sort of like, even if you checked with this, you wouldn't be 100% sure they were prime. You'd, just, you'd think they were probably prime. But there are annoyingly 100, uh, uh, there are infinitely many of these false primes out there. So actually working out whether something's prime or not can be quite, quite hard. There are ways of quickly showing something isn't, uh, but uh, there are these false primes out there. Let me change topic a little bit here, first of all. So that's a, it's a picture of Wiles. Um, this is untrue now, I'm afraid. So, so the new maths building, which you're actually going to, I think, after this, or some of you, it's called the Andrew Wiles building. And the Andrew Wiles building was named, unsurprisingly, after Andrew Wiles, who is here in, uh, doing maths at Oxford. And he's the man who proved Fermat's last theorem, which was one of the really famous theorems of mathematics that had been uh, unproved for 350 years. And he, he came along and proved it in the 90s. But... Um, so you, you may well be seeing the new Andrew Wiles building uh, after this. So Fermat was an important mathematician in the 17th century. Let's change topic a little bit now and think to ourselves, how is this going to be useful, what I'm talking about, in the real world? Because you might be thinking, prime numbers, they're nice enough, um, but what point are they? Um, well, actually, you use them a lot without really knowing it. Like I say, if ever you buy anything off the internet, um, then you basically are using prime numbers. So what's the setup in the internet? You've got yourself your computer, and you're sort of like on the internet with an internet company. How are they going to be able to get from you your or your parents' credit card number to them without anyone that's saying, uh, you know, 
intercepting the communication or anyone who later steals your computer or something like that, how can you be sure that your credit card number will be safe? And you've got to remember there are millions and millions of people out there using the internet all the time to buy things. Well, there are always all sorts of problems with uh, communications. In fact, if you, if you want to, and, and code, sorry, if you want to uh, read a good book on this, there's a book by Simon Singh, just called The Code Book. And it's a very good read for uh, finding out about how people used to communicate in secret over the years. It's not, it's not hugely mathematical, but there's, it's, a very, it's a very good read. And some, some of this detail will be in uh, that book as well. So how might you do this? If you think to yourself, I'd like to keep a secret, but I want to you know, share it with a few friends, but only those friends. So they really is secret amongst us, uh, but no one else. Well, they used to do this uh, many years ago by just using a very simple cipher. What you might do is, you've got this message you want to send. What you could do is just change every letter in some way that you was agreed, okay? You and all your friends would know that this was how you were going to communicate. You were going to scramble your message by taking a word and swapping letters. For example, let me give you an example here. So what you do is, at the top here, you've got yourself what's called the key. Whenever you see an A, you're going to replace it by a G. Whenever you see a B, you're going to replace it by a P. Whenever you see an N, you're going to replace it by a Q. So if I get a phrase like Oxford Mathematics, if I've done this right, O became L, and X became W, and F became N, and so on. But if you sort of like managed to, uh, or if you lost this message, or your friends lost it, anyone just picking this up wouldn't know what this said. Okay, this would be a scrambled message and they wouldn't know anything about what you've been trying to say to one another. The trouble is, once you start saying a lot to one another, you, other people can start making guesses as to what the, how it got scrambled. Because the I mean, there's all sorts of problems here. One is, how do you carefully get this private key to all your friends? And then, uh, if you keep communicating enough, people can start making guesses as to what you might have been writing. So if I had a page, you know, quite a long bit of text, and I used my key to scramble it all, sent it to you, but it accidentally got intercepted, what, what letter do you think might appear most in the scrambled, uh, scrambled work? Can anyone make a guess? If I was using this key up here, what do you think would appear most? Yeah. G, you're going for G because it's under A, and A is a very common uh, letter. So that's, a, that's a good suggestion. There would be a lot of Gs, but it wouldn't be the most common one. Does anyone know? Yeah. It would be J, but there would be a lot of Gs, but there'd probably be most Js, because E is the most common letter in the English alphabet. Does anyone know what the second most common is? No, I'm afraid not. We could be here a while, I suppose, we have to have asked this. It's, uh, go on then. No, no, it's actually T. T is the next most common one. But you can see you're already guessing uh, the way people are. If you saw a lot of J's, you'd be thinking, maybe that came from E, maybe that came from T, 
And then if you sort of like saw a lot of things that were maybe T something E, you might be thinking to yourself that's perhaps an H that was the something uh, between them. This is what's fancily called frequency analysis. So here are the how common the English uh, letters are. So you can see E appears most commonly at 12.7% of the time, and T is the next most common one at 9.1. But A is common, as someone said, and S is also pretty common as well. So there's a, uh, you could sort of, once you add a lot of text, you could start making educated guesses. You wouldn't want to just go in randomly and start thinking this might be that and this might be that. Uh, but you could do some frequency analysis. So it was actually Islamic mathematicians around 800 AD that actually started being able to break down this code. So you can't just use, especially in this day of modern computers, you can't just sort of like use a cipher the way they used to do back in Roman times or something like that. It would just be much too easy to crack. So you're going to have to be a bit smarter. Also, if you're a sort of like an internet company, perhaps someone like Amazon or something like that, they've got millions and millions of customers. Even if they came up with something a bit better than this, are they really going to have to send all this to all the customers around the world and be sure that everyone's sort of like taking good care of it and not leaving it on a bus and various things like that? They're really going to have to come up with something better than that. So this, is the, this has always been an issue of what are called private keys. How do you get the key to your friends? Because if, if maybe your, one of your friends isn't that trustworthy, or they lose it, or um, it just gets intercepted, all your enemies, because we might be talking about this at wartime, all your enemies can now have it. And these are either competitor companies, or they're enemies at wartime. Security is a major issue uh, you know, with, with you know, personal details, with secrets, uh, with things like that, it could be majorly important that the, the, this information gets kept secret. So these are guys, uh, so uh, Rivesh Shamir and Edelman, they gave their initials to what is basically the most used bit of maths really, I guess, in the world today. It's the maths, or it, it, it's a large part of the mathematics behind internet security. If you give over your credit card uh, details, send it on, to some internet company, it will be this or some version of this that's basically keeping it secret. It's actually, it's reasonably new maths because this came in 1977, which I guess might seem a long time ago to you people, but yeah, I remember 1977. And it, that's quite new for mathematics. 1977, they came up with this idea. It uses what I told you about earlier, Fermat's Little Theorem. So it's 17th century maths and the Chinese remainder theorem, which is even older maths. So the actual maths behind this, you could explain to Fermat, and he'd understand it fine. What he'd be astonished about is how you've got to know about prime numbers that are like hundreds and millions of digits long. He'd have no idea about the modern computer age, so he wouldn't know how you'd be able to come up with a prime number with 17 million digits, like we mentioned earlier. So... Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how prime numbers are used in this. So this is sort of the, we don't really want to use a private key system. We want to use a public key system. It's a bit better. So what the internet company does is tell all its uh, customers, or really the customers' computers, how they're going to be able to scramble their message so that you can send on your uh, credit card details in a careful way. 
You won't be able to unscramble them, but you will be able to scramble them, and that's quite, quite subtle. So what they do, the internet company sends to your machine something called the public key. They don't mind if it gets lost, the internet company, because all it is is a means of scrambling, okay? Then your computer gets it, you go and you buy what you want on the internet, and you send your details on, and only the internet company knows how to de-scramble it, unscramble it, decrypt it, is the fancy word. Okay? And what makes this secure, and what makes this basically mean that no one's going to be able to break it, is if you multiply numbers together, that's easy. Any computer can do it quite quickly, even if the numbers are huge. But if you're going to factorise it, then it takes a long, long time, okay? So if I gave a computer a very large number and said, please go and work out its factors, especially if there weren't many of them and the factors were big, it might sit there for ages and ages and years and years, and in fact, millennia and millennia, before it actually came up with the answer. So that, that's this, what, what, why the system's secure. So if you multiply two large numbers together, it's easy. If you then gave the computer that product and said, find them, then it might sit there working for a long, long time. And this is what's called a one-way function, where it's very easy to go one way and incredibly hard, at least computation-wise, to come backwards. So let me give you a few more details here. So what, what goes on is your, in your computer is the internet company gives your computer just two numbers, N and E. And actually what goes on in the computer is very simple. E is called the encrypting power, and the number N is huge. It might be like a thousand digits long. And it's only got two factors. It's got two prime numbers as its factors. All this uh, system is still a cipher. It's like taking those 26 letters we had before and moving them around and rearranging them as 26. But we're not using 26 anymore. We're now using N. And so N is about 10 to the power of 1,000, a huge, huge number. And so if you thought to yourself, you know, where are my E's and my T's amongst this 10 to the 1,000 numbers, you just can't do frequency analysis anymore. It's just too, too big. You're going to have to find other ways of doing it. So it's still a cipher, but we're using a number much, much bigger than 26 now. And all that your computer does... Um, I mean, it might be explained a bit more in something called clockwork arithmetic or modular arithmetic, but I've just explained it in different ways here. Um, you want to send on your credit card details. Let's say this is some number M, and M is probably going to be less than N, but if not, you could send it bit by bit, your message. So let, let's say M is, bigger than, is less than N. All your computer does is take that number E that the internet company gave it, raise it to the power E, divide by the number N, and you get some remainder. It goes so many times does N and it leaves some remainder. And the remainder is just what gets sent on. So it's very big numbers that are involved, but the actual maths is really quite simple. You raise it to the power E, you divide by N, and whatever the remainder is, you send on. This is now your scrambled message, and if someone intercepted it, it would just be gobbledygook to them. They wouldn't know anything about it. 
Maybe there are people there thinking I could break that. That would be easy enough to break. Uh, so let's think, talk about cracking it. How would you crack this? Let me, actually, let me go back one slide here. Um, if you've got any public key system, what you have told people how to do is encrypt. That's a bit like giving someone half of an English-French dictionary, okay? Let's say I gave you the English-French half of a dictionary. And I said to you, what does jeudi mean? What does jeudi mean? And Thursday, okay. How long do you think it would take you, not knowing that, and with only the English-French bit, what would you have to do to work out jeudi meant Thursday? Why would it take you a while? Yeah, you'd have to just keep looking. You wouldn't know where to start, but in principle, if you sat there and sat there and sat there and eventually got to T's, then you'd work out that Jerdy meant Thursday, but it would take you ages. So if I gave you the English-French half of a dictionary and said, make the other half, you could. It would take you a long, long time, but if someone tells you how to encrypt or change something into a different language, you always have, in, in principle, a way of getting it back. But that's going to have to take you a long, long time for this to be secure, and it would take you a long, long time here, because you'd have to sort of like take N words or n numbers that have been turned to n numbers, and then you'd have to work out all these calculations and then sort of alphabetize the other half to get back. That's going to take for ages. Another thing you might try and do is just actually work out what the factors of that n is. That n is this thousand-digit number is somewhere in your computer. If you can go and work out what its factors are, you can break the code. But that's going to take you pretty much forever. Okay? And the internet company tomorrow or probably even later this afternoon are going to be using different prime numbers. So you don't have the rest of the universe to sort of like work this through. You've only got sort of like perhaps the next 10, 15 minutes before another set of numbers are used. So it's pretty secure. At the other end, the, inter the internet company has got what matters. They've got the factors of N. They know those. And because of that, they can work out the decrypting power. So when you've sent on your scrambled message C, okay, here, then at the other hand, they just raise it to a decrypting power D, known only to them, divide again by N, and as if by magic, but it's just Fermat's little theorem and um, the Chinese remainder theorem, when you divide by N, M pops out. They now know your credit card details, what you wanted to buy, where they need to send it. All that information comes out. So it's really just quite simple uh, maths that is going on. Okay. So like I say here, if you wanted to go and try and crack this, uh, then you could do this by um, trying to do all the scrambling, rearrange the scrambling and make the other half of the dictionary. That would take forever pretty much. Or you could try factorising this number n. That's pretty much going to take forever as well. So it's a very, very secure system. Okay, let me um, sort of like draw this to a close a bit by talking a little bit about how the primes are distributed. So I hope you now at least see that the primes can be really quite useful. They're funnier primes in that it's very easy to ask very hard questions about them. You can uh, do all sorts of things. Like if you, look at, if you look at this list, 
you can see you've got 3 and 5 next to one another, 5 and 7, 11 and 13, seven and 17 and 19, 29 and 31. These are what are called twin primes. Apart from 2, no number that's even is prime. So all primes are odd, apart from 2. And this means that the nearest two of them could be together is just a difference of 2. And you can see quite a few examples here, 29 and 31, uh, 71 and 73. And these are called twin primes. And people want to know whether or not there are infinitely many twin primes, and no one knows. No one's close to knowing, really, at the moment. There's been progress with that problem just this year, and a lot of mathematicians got excited about various re results relating to that, but no one actually knows whether there are infinitely many primes that are just two apart. So it's very easy to ask very hard questions about these sorts of things. One thing we do sort of understand, though, is just how frequent they are. Because they might look a bit random, but long term we can actually get a fairly good sense of how, how often they pop up. And that's something called the prime number theorem. Okay. And my guess is you might not have met this idea before, so let me just tell you what a factorial is. Okay. You've probably seen it on your calculator. Uh, it's this N and then an exclamation mark. And if you've never been sure what it was, it uh, just multiplies all the numbers up to it together. So 3 factorial is 1 times 2 times 3, which is 6. 4 factorial is 1 times 2 times 3 times 4, which is 24. And 5 factorial C is 120, and 6 factorial is 720. Why am I mentioning this is because you can use this idea to show there are quite large gaps amongst the primes. If I said to you, find me 100 numbers one after another, that none of them are prime. I'm not, you might be thinking to yourself, that's impossible. There aren't a hundred numbers one after another that aren't prime. But there are gaps like that in amongst the primes. And you can actually see that using this idea. Okay, so there are large gaps in the, pri in the primes, as large as you want them to be. If I, if I take n factorial plus 2, n's just some number, 2 was in that product n factorial. So 2 divides n factorial, because n factorial is 1 times 2 all the way up to n. And if I add 2, this number is still going to be divisible by 2. If you look at the next number, if n is bigger than 3, then 3 will divide n factorial. Okay? It will also divide 3, so the next number is divisible by 3. And if n is bigger than 4, or 4 or more, then 4 will be in 4 factorial, go into 4 factorial, and also be divisible by 4. So the first number is divisible by 2, the next one by 3, the next one by 4. And if I choose n as large as I want it to be, here is a list of numbers, one after the other, that have no primes. So for example here, 5 factorial plus 2, 122 is divisible by 2, 123 is divisible by 3, 124 is divisible by 4, 125 is divisible by 5. So if I used n as 101, I'd actually have 100 numbers, one after another, none of which are prime. So there's, there's gaps as large as you want in amongst the prime numbers. But at the same time, we sometimes think that, that infinitely often there's two just next door to one another. So you get, you get odd um, sort of like spurts of prime numbers and then huge gaps. Here's another thing you might have seen on your computer, calculator, but you perhaps never quite 
<coughs> known what it was. So this is called the ln function, okay? Which is a, I'm, I'm not going to use it much here, but ln is basically, stands for natural logarithm. Uh, you can work it out on your calculator. That's a graph of what it looks like. ln of one is naught. ln of larger numbers, ln of a number between two and three is one. Um, you can work out a few things about it, but I'm just going to use it here to tell you a little bit about primes. It's got these nice properties. Um, it basically takes multiplication and turns it into addition. So uh, if you take ln of a product, you just add the values of ln. And it's not, ln numbers aren't very big compared with what originally you had. So ln of a million is just 13.8. Okay, so it takes quite large numbers and gives you quite small ones. But you don't really need to know much about it, but it, it does come up in this next theorem. So this is, gives you a sense that actually primes do follow some sort of pattern. You might think to yourself, how many numbers are there, how many prime numbers are there less, say, than a million, or a billion, or a trillion? And you can get pretty good estimates for that without actually working them all out. And that's what mathematicians suspected since uh, 18th century, proved at the end of the 19th century, that if you have, want to work out how many prime numbers there are less than, say, uh, about a billion, you work out a billion divided by ln of a billion. And that would give you a pretty good estimate of how many prime numbers there are there, without having to work them all out. And in fact, here's a picture of the graphs. Okay, so I'm not sure you can actually see this in this slide, but there are actually two lines there. So the top line, the blue one, is how many prime numbers there are, less than all these numbers. And the n divided by, so x divided by ln of x is the estimate, and it's always a bit of an underestimate, at least initially, okay? So it gives you a bit of an underestimate here, uh, but it makes a pretty good um, estimate of how many they are. And long term, they're basically um, pretty much the same number. Well, they're, they're, what this twiddles means on the previous slide is that if you divide how many prime numbers there are by your estimate, long term that number goes to about one. So pretty much it's 100% long term that it's estimated. Anyway, I'm almost done here. So let me, let me try and give you a sense of, um, first of all, how hard then it is to factorize things. Using this prime number theory, if I said to you, um, how many, how many uh, prime numbers am I going to have to try, how many factorizations am I going to have to try to actually work out, say, whether something in the, of the order of 10 to the 20 is actually prime. So I've got a 20-digit number, not a 1,000-digit number like we had in RSA, a 20-digit number. To test whether it's really prime or not, I've got to try potentially all the prime numbers up to its square root, all right? And if you use that previous theorem to work out how many calculations I'd have to do, it ends up being about 2 root n divided by this number lnn. So just to give you an example here, if I was trying to work out whether a number with 20 digits actually was prime, 
and let's say it was, I'm going to have to try all these, uh, that many calculations to actually work out whether it was. And just for this 20-digit number, I've got to do 400 million trial factorizations of quite large numbers. Okay, so just a 20-digit number is going to be quite hard to check its prime. Um, I might have to do 400 million calculations to actually work that out. There are other more subtle ways of trying to test this, but it's always going to be a hard thing to check. So as I said here, there's actually, it's actually quite easy to make claims about prime numbers that might be very hard to prove. Um, here, here are a few things we do know to be true. If you take all the prime numbers and add their inverses, so or what call the reciprocals, if you take all these sums, that sum keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and basically goes off to infinity. So that, that, that becomes uh, large, and Euler proved that. If you take any what's called arithmetic progression, so something like perhaps 3, 7, 11, 15, 19, 23, and so on. So you start with a certain number, and then you have a common difference all the time. Now you can see here I've got various things that are prime, and I've got various things that aren't. Well, there's got two more primes here, but the next one isn't. A man called Dirichlet, he went and proved all these sequences will always have infinitely many primes in them. Okay? So for any sequence like that, yes, you'll get some things that aren't prime, but there will be infinitely many primes in those. He proved that. And a man called Chebyshev, who was a Russian mathematician, he showed that there'll always be a prime number between any n and it's double. So if I gave you 10 and 20, there's a prime number between those. If I gave you 100 and 200, there'll always be a prime number between those. Perhaps lots of them, uh, but he proved there'll always be a prime number before, between those. And then just to finish, uh, these are one, things we don't know. Um, can every whole number, every even number, be written as the sum of two primes? If I gave you 10, you can write it as 3 and 7. I gave you 12, that's 5 and 7. If I gave you 20, this is 3 and 17. Oh, you know? No one knows if every even number can be written like that. We, we, we've checked it up to about sort of like 10 to the 20 or something like that. It's probably true, but it only takes one counterexample to show it isn't. And no one knows the answer. No one knows whether it's possible to write every even number as the sum of two primes. Keep trying if you wish, but people, like I say, have gone up to 10 to the 20, and that hasn't, uh, and no one's found one yet. And then there are other important types of primes, primes of this form, 2 to the p minus 1, and no one knows whether there are infinitely many of those either. So primes are an important thing. They're very easy to describe in some ways, very useful in things like internet security, uh, but it's also very easy to ask very hard questions about them. So I think I'm going to finish there. Um, has anyone got any questions that they might want asking? Like I say, if you want to find out more about how to uh, create secure codes and how to scramble mes messages carefully, then Simon Singh's book's very good if you want to have a read on this further. Okay, I think I'll hand over to Zareen if she's in the audience. Thank you. <laughs>